Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. The episode show notes are at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this and all the other episodes. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list, and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. My newsletter goes out every week with updates about the podcast, my works in progress, and all sorts of cool sword stuff. You can unsubscribe at any time and there's never any spam. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank the people who make it possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast, and without them I'd have quit long ago. Join us at patreon.com forward slash thesoardguy for behind-the-scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash thesoardguy. I'd also like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show, originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. It was my birthday on November the 30th, so as has become traditional, I have a present for you. You can use the code GUYTURNS49 to get £5 off any of my books at swordschool.shop or 30% off any course at courses.swordschool.com. The code will work until the end of December 2022. That's turns 49 all caps, all one word, at swordschool.shop and courses.swordschool.com. Most podcasts have sponsors who offer discounts to the listeners and money to the host. In the sword world, most of the companies and organisations offering products or services to sword people have tiny profit margins and precious little cash, so I thought I'd introduce a non-sponsor segment to the show where I call out producers of good sword stuff and recommend them to my listeners without getting paid for it. Of course, if your company is in that tiny overlap of having margins that allow for discounts and budget for sponsoring podcasts, and I can wholeheartedly and without reservation recommend you to my listeners, that last one is probably the killer, drop me a line at guy at guywindsor.com and we can talk. My non-sponsor this week is armsandarmor.com. That's A-R-M-S hyphen N hyphen A-R-M-O-R, because they're Americans, dot com. Maker of swords and training weapons. I got my default training rapier from them in 2005 and my longsword in 2004, and they are both still going strong. They also made my sharp rapier and dagger and my training smallsword. I interviewed Smith Craig Johnson in episode 33, and he's not just a great Smith, he's also a good friend, so you might think I'm biased. Except, those swords are still on the rack, scratched and worn. I've replaced the leather on the longsword grip at least twice, and still going strong after more than 15 years. So, if you're looking for a new sword, go to armsandarmor.com, that's A-R-M-S hyphen N hyphen A-R-M-O-R dot com, and in the meantime, on with the show. I'm here today with Kane Maxwell, who is an instructor of physical culture, who's been teaching physical skills his entire life, from swimming to military firearms to ballroom dancing even. And now he is teaching mounted martial arts 
and runs a school called Marshall Equestrian, a mounted combat school in Hinkley, Ohio. So without further ado, Kane, welcome to the show. Hello, Guy. It's nice to see you again. Um, so are you at the moment in Hinkley, Ohio? I am. I am. I'm at my school. I mean, we call it the lab where we do our okay. experiments on uh, <laughs> physical phenomena to see if it works or not. And it's also a good place to do ground practice stuff off the horse. Actually, yes, I can see bows and arrows and spears and things in the background. Yeah, we have a, we have a little skeleton back here and a, a wooden horse as well. What is the skeleton for? You know, because, uh, well, because <laughs> a lot of, a lot of um, I think, misinterpretations of physical movement get inserted into institutional movement practice. And so with a skeleton, we can say, look, the skeleton, the human skeleton only moves so many ways. A horse skeleton only moves so many ways. Um, and you can say, well, but look, you know, I have this technique and, and my, or my teacher always said to do blank. Uh, but, you know, but when I say, but look, this is how the human skeleton works. I have, I have a physical skeleton to demonstrate with. So I, I do a lot of stuff with the hips. And so having this, this physical uh skeleton to work with where you can see how the spine joins the hips where the legs joins the hips it's it's an easier visual aid than uh the human body which has all this you know meat and guts sure. around it <laughs> <laughs> okay um is that a male pattern pelvis or a female pattern pelvis uh good question i don't know because it does make a difference it does uh it does um however there are um for what we do, what I mostly do with the hips it has to do with the riding. Right. And the things that I explain about how the pelvis moves on the horse um, and, 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 and its relationship to the spine and the legs, the, the advice is the same for males and females. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, I would guess it's probably a male skeleton. They usually are. It, it looks male, but I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not an expert on that sort of thing. Okay. I don't know. Is it actually a real skeleton or is it a plastic dummy? No, it's it's a resin, it's a resin copy. Okay, I mean, I, I have I have been to places where they had real skeletons. <laughs> it was very strange. Uh, you know, every, every the thing is, everything here has to be replaceable because everything here gets broken. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, so, okay, We're, we are definitely going to get into the equipment in a little bit because because looking at it on the wall behind you is making me think. Oh, right, I wouldn't talk about this. But uh, before we get into that, how did you? end up where you are in other words how did you get into martial arts of various kinds what was your path from you know presumably kid mad about weapons and swords and stuff to your current position okay you know i really want to give a 25 word answer about this um you know, and i think saying well you know i trained under uh so and so i was um i, I trained with the Ganyard champion of Pinchoxilat in Bali, and I trained with so and so who uh, started this historic European martial arts club, uh, and I got a belt in this system, and and, and you know so on and so forth, um, you know. But but really honestly, guy, I, I got I got into martial arts because I, I I grew up unpopular in a rough neighborhood, and I and I learned to fight by fighting. Um, let me plug okay. real quick. Let me plug real quick on that. Also, um, to that end, if if your interest in the martial arts is purely self-preservation. Learn to be funny. Yeah, that's good advice. You know, if you really just want, if you really just want to stay out of trouble and people not to hurt you, you should be more popular. You know, if you can make someone laugh 
they're not going to hurt you. If there's somebody out there who's an excellent comedian and is like, no, people beat me up all the time, but by all means, please reach out and set me straight. But, you know, anybody can be hurt. Uh, so if you're unpopular, um, it doesn't matter if, if, if you're good at throwing a punch or good at taking a shot. Um, if you're targeted for hatred, uh, harm will come to you. Uh, but anyway, yeah. that's, I, I was, I wasn't fighting. <laughs> I didn't make, I didn't make people around me laugh, you know, so I was unpopular, uh, in a rough neighborhood and I got into a lot of fights and I actually, um, spurned learning, you know, getting formal education in martial arts for a long time. So I was kind of, kind of proud of how I was doing as a fighter without education. So I was like, well, I don't want to give somebody else credit for, uh, teaching me how to fight. I learned to fight by, by fighting. Uh, but eventually, you know, I started picking up some stuff here and there. But it was through the lens of what I already knew, you know. So I would go into some schools um, and basically walk right out the door when they say, well, this is what happens in a real fight. And it was clearly right. somebody who had never been hit in anger. <laughs> yes. You know, so and, and I think I think, look, I don't think you have to have been in a fight to be a good technician. I don't. And, and I don't think people should just go out and get into fights arbitrarily to cultivate their martial ability. Stay, stay out of trouble. <laughs> stay out of trouble. Um, but you can't know you can't know what a real fight's like if you if you haven't um, if you haven't experienced the wind of hatred if you've never been in a real fight. Yeah. So I studied I studied through the lens of um, the lens of somebody who'd been in a lot of fights and with the psychology of someone who'd been in, so, someone who'd been in a lot of fights and someone who I guess uh, you know I had a chip on my shoulder so I, I wanted to be a good fighter because I was uh, I guess. I had to express. I had to express myself, um, and, and martial art kind of gave me an outlet for that. Okay, but at some point um, you came to Finland to train with me for a little bit. Okay, a lot happened in between. Why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why? Uh, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so I, I um, when I left the military, when I left the military, I sat down and probably like a lot of people leaving the military said, well, what am I going to do now? And I sat there and just thought about it in silence. And a voice came to my head and said, I want to be a swordsman. Okay. okay. I know that voice. Yes. Yes. Um, probably a few of your listeners are uh, familiar with that call. Uh, I had no, no idea where to start. This was in the um, early aughts, I think 2000, uh, 2004, 2005. Yeah, 2005. And so there was, there was a... Um, Western historical uh, martial arts um, circuit sort of building momentum. I don't think it was, I don't think it had adopted the moniker HEMA at the time. I, I could be wrong about that. I, no, I no, it predates the whole HEMA thing. Right. Um, and I, you know, actually, I didn't find anybody for a long time, um, but I, I dabbled in this and I dabbled in that. Um, and eventually I did find, I did find an organization where I lived. It was in Atlanta at the time. I did find an organization where I lived that did that sort of stuff. And they were very uh, aggressive. My experience with um, sword people up until then was with um, people that had, I think, fantastic notions of violence. Fantastic that, as in based on fantasy? Yes, yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. Not right. fantastic as in great. Yeah, uh, yeah let, let, me, let me be clear about that. Yes, I, 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 yeah. I, I mean to say that I think um, they were strangers to violence and, and wanted, to, wanted to keep it that way. I don't think these were people that were really... Uh, they weren't the bloodthirsty sort, and that's fine. I'm not, I'm not trying to disparage them. Um, but uh, again, I, I studied martial art with the lens of um, someone who'd been in some fights, 
And so, and some it, military training too. And and military, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, the military training is. I don't agree with all of it, but um, it, it was practical, right? It was it was okay. uh, it was applied with the expectation that it would be put to use. Yeah. What don't you agree with, if I may ask? What don't I agree with? Uh, well, mi- military <laughs> military pedagogy is that's 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 a that's a huge topic. Um, first of all, the the what gets taught in the military is not necessarily what is best, but what um, but what comes from someone who's in a position to influence the pedagogy. In other words, uh, you know, you might have a really brilliant technician who's um, experienced and practical and, and a great teacher, but he's not in a position to influence the military to say, this is the system we should teach, we teach the way that I teach. Um, it's the people who can whisper into the ears of, of the um, administrators who, who give the okay for military sure. training. So, so, so you'll find you'll find some like oh, for example, you know, you'll find old army manuals on taekwondo. Um, and, and I just I really don't think taekwondo has has a lot of practical application on the, the modern battlefield. Some people might no. massively disagree with me on that, um, and that's no, fine. I'm, I'm willing to hear I'm willing to hear an educated <laughs> argument to the contrary, um, but it, it doesn't seem like the best, the most efficient way. You should shoot people on the battlefield rather than kick them in the head. I would say, generally, absolutely, absolutely. And I think I think there is some application for hand to hand combat. Okay, or or sure. Uh, uh, or or, or um, less than lethal applications, but uh, what what Taekwondo focuses on, I think, really doesn't have a place. Uh, yeah. So so who, somebody yeah. somebody influenced somebody in the military, or maybe somebody who himself had the influence. You know, they said, "Hey, you are now the training officer, or you know, whatever position he was in. You're now the training officer um, who gets to dictate what the military learns. What what do you want to teach him?" And he says, well, you know, I've got a black belt in Taekwondo and I really love it. So that's what they're going to learn. And that may not be exactly what happened. Yeah. I'm just giving an example. I'm just giving an example. Um, so sometimes it's, it's the actual uh, curricula. Yeah. Okay. And the other thing is, um, I, I shouldn't say I don't agree with this globally. It's that, I, um, you know, military training has to be faster, cheaper. There has to be economy to military training. What, what can you yeah. get the average recruit of ordinary or even below ordinary ability to master in as short a time as possible. And that's not necessarily the most effective um, for the individual. Sure. That's not the most effective technique for the individual technician. However, on, uh, on a scale and a numbers game, if you have, you know, if you have huge turnover of, of recruits and you're just, you're just trying to, to get, the, uh, get the numbers, um, whatever's easiest to learn the fastest is going to be more uh, more practical, right? So it's not that sure. I disagree that, that that's a good system to, to do that, but that may not be the best system for an individual technician to learn. So if, if you're like, sure. well, what's the best, what's the best, most practical thing for me to learn as, as a personal, personally for me as a, as a martial artist, as a technician, what do I want to learn? Well, the military, it's, it's, you know, they're really preparing real people for real combat. It must be good stuff, right? And, and that's not necessarily the case. It's not necessarily the case. And, um, you know, if, if you're saying, well, because if I get into a real fight in the streets, I want to be able to do some real stuff. Well, what you do in the streets, what you do in the streets is not the same. That's not answering the same questions as what no. you do on the battlefield. And also, if you want to get into real fights in the street, then then you're an idiot. And if the streets where you go are the sorts of streets where real fights might happen, you shouldn't go to those streets. 
That doesn't make any sense. Fair, fair. Although some people don't have that luxury. True, true. Um, you know, and and so um, if if they're if they're right about it, if this is an excellent system, right? So um, you know, some some top tier operators, you know, they learn some hand to hand stuff and some um, less than lethal uh, force applications that work for their very specific situation, which involves teams, um, which involves um, their suite of support, meaning that, you know, it's not their only um, application or, or uh, I guess, I guess tools for use of force. So yeah. we're saying, you know, um, if you're going to hit somebody in the face because you want to assault him, but not kill him, you're assuming that you also have a ton of lethal options available, such as the rifle in your hand and uh, a team of guys behind you and, um, you know, throwable explosives. It, it, there's all sorts of stuff that is, is factored into this hand-to-hand stuff that it is not going to answer the problem of somebody's getting into a street fight. Right. So I think it's, I think it's a bit um, disconnected to, to say, oh, well, uh, this, you know, this special forces unit, they train in this um, they train in this system. That must be the best system because those are the best, you know, operators. Right. Well, yeah, cause, but the context for which they're, they're training is going to be very different to the context in which the average martial arts interested person is going to be applying their martial art if indeed they ever do. So, I mean, I would I would be delighted to go on a special forces um, close quarter combat training course for academic interest to see how they're doing it, what they're training for, how they train for that what sort of techniques and stuff they come up with. But it wouldn't cross my mind to take that to learn some kind of like self-defense for the mean streets of Ipswich. That would just be weird. Uh, right, right. You, you would see in, in the most um, practical systems where people, operators, are, are using the techniques and come back and say, hey, I tried the technique. It worked. It didn't work. This, this, is, this is my experience with it in, in actual battle or in actual raids. Um, you would find stuff that's hyper-specialized to their situation. Exactly. Right? The, the most effective stuff is going to be hyper-specialized to their situation and going to be even less applicable to, uh, like you said, you know, your average civilian um, roughing it up in a, in, a, in a bad neighborhood. Yeah. Okay, so we've had a look at, at, at what you don't agree with the military. Thank you for sharing that because not every um, ex-military personnel is willing to <laughs> go on record as to what they were entirely in agreement with um but you were you were looking at training in swordsmanship and you were finding that you were you were basically encountering people who were teaching swordsmanship who had as you described a fantastic i.e based on fantasy view of how violence works so where did you go from there uh well i did find one group that that trained it was a source based training group um mm-hmm. there was had, had one uh, one guy who organized it, um, who had his system based on multiple sources. It, it, you know, now, nowadays people talk about, do you do Italian or do you do German? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and if we had to say he leaned one way or another, we could. But I think th- this this is this is one of the kind of this is one of the original um, wave of HEMA guys before we were calling it HEMA. And I think it was an amalgam of several of the sources. And he says, well, look, these guys are saying this and these guys are saying this. This is, this is my interpretation of it. And he wanted to bring it to flesh. You know, he, he wanted to make it he sure. wanted to make it live. And I saw uh, I saw a demonstration between him and some of the students. And and 
it looked like real fighting to me. It looked like a real fight. That was the first time I'd seen people playing with swords where it looked like a fight. Yeah. So I, uh, I followed them after the demonstration, and I, I got involved, and uh, I played with them for a few years. Okay. Then what happened next? You still haven't got to Finland. We still haven't gotten to Finland. Um, well, th- I, th- that, that was I, almost exclusively the group that I, that I was involved with for a while, um, and that whetted my appetite for that um what did my appetite for and also got me habituated to i, I guess that that style i hate to use the, the term style style i think is um it engenders a sort of silo effect but um but that sort of uh, community let's say community of <clears throat> martial enthusiasts and i i went to finland because <laughs> um i had gone there before on a whim i, I was uh, going to school in st petersburg in russia and uh, Finland was just a couple hours away. So on winter break, on winter break, I just, I just took a bus, um, to Porvo and, uh, I loved it there. It was, it was really, um, you know, it just, it just, it felt really nice. Russia was stressful. It was very stressful in Russia. Everybody's all stressed out and, and, and there's just yeah. sort of tension in the air all the time. That was before. Even more so now. now. <laughs> yeah, that was before what's going yeah. on now. Um, but Finland just, just, it was, it was really nice there. You know, folks were really nice. Um, and I remembered it and I really loved it. And so, um, fast forward a, a few years when I finished my graduate studies, uh, I was so stressed out, you know, and just, just so disenchanted with, um, the, the, the program that I just graduated from. And I, I said, just to reward myself for, um, for persevering through that, that, that program, I was going to take a trip to Finland. So I really just went for fun, but okay. But I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist while I was there looking to see what sort of martial arts schools there were. It's 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 sort of a thing I do as a tourist. I I, I collect yeah. uh, martial arts schools like like um, like souvenirs. So uh, you came up, and, and it was a coincidence um, that you trained in a system that you know was similar to something I had done before. Okay, um, so. Couple more, couple of follow-up questions. So, what were you studying in St. Petersburg? Russian. Is that for the army or for? No, it was, it was for my undergraduate. Okay. What? Yeah. What? What brought you to St. Petersburg? So, were you doing a language degree in the states and you had a year in St. Petersburg as an exchange student or as part of your degree or was your whole degree in Russian? Right. No. Um. I, so, so my my undergraduate was in Russian and Chinese. Okay. And. Um, I didn't. I, I didn't have to go, but yeah, you're, you're right. It was. Um, it, it was. It was part of the degree program, so it counted for credits toward my graduation. And um, I, I think I, I went to Tulane University, and I think, according to them, I was the first student to go study abroad in Russia. So I don't know if that's correct. But it's wow. Yeah, from Tulane. That's weird. So how on earth, yeah. how on earth do you study Russian without spending some time in Russia? I mean, that's just mad. Uh, I don't know, but but listen, there there are a couple of universities here that. Um, not necessarily universities, but uh, a couple of schools here that do a great job of teaching language without sending people over. Mid- Middlebury in Vermont is a language school, and, and a lot of folks who graduated from there say that uh, folks and, and employers who have employed language that came out of there say that um, time at Middlebury is better than time in country. Um, really? The, the defense, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Defense Language Institute, DLI, in California, um, they, they get people... Um, competent enough in their B language to um, to understand uh, a foreign language and 
six or sometimes eight, excuse me, 12 or sometimes 18 months uh, to be able to listen in on native conversations. And, and let, let me tell you, to anybody who doesn't, who doesn't know, you know, who hasn't studied foreign languages uh, to, uh, uh, you know, to a level of um, practicability, that's, that's tough. Listening to natives speak to each yeah. other's is listening, you know, through um, not, in, not even in person, but just listening through, you know, uh, like surveillance devices to two um, natives with all their mumbling, speaking quickly and uh, things that are implied. Well, That's very like, like you and I now, like one, one of the reasons, one of the reasons why we have transcriptions on the show is so that people who are interested but maybe their English isn't good enough to follow a conversation at the kind of speed that, because most of my guests are native speakers of English, and I'm obviously a native speaker of English. It's really hard um, because, again, depending on the guest, some speak really quickly. Sometimes it's a lot of back and forth. Um, it is difficult to follow. And so, yeah, so we have transcriptions so that people can go, oh, that was interesting. What the hell did Guy just say? And they can go and find out from the transcription. Um, but also, Training somebody to be able to understand the language when it's spoken is quite high level, but not nearly so hard as training them to speak in such a way that native speakers would mistake them for a native speaker. That's like the holy grail of, of language instruction, I think. Sure. Yeah. Well, depend, depending on the disposition of the student, you know, some people are very good at, sure. um, at learning the, the, the grammar quickly. You know, some people grammar mystifies them their entire lives. I know several people that, that got fluent in, um, in, in Russian. They can, can hold conversations all day long, have a huge vocabulary. They never, never fumble with the grammar. That's what you're saying a lot. But their accents are thick as molasses. They just sound like they're, you know, like they're speaking strange words in, in, in American English. Um, but they're understood. <laughs> yeah. They're understood well enough, but, but their accent's terrible. I mastered an accent very easily, but, uh, but you know, but the grammar stumps me. So I, uh, it, 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 it's it, it depends on the disposition of the student, you know. Um, but yeah, but well, I think I, I think overall, go ahead. And so I, I have a when I'm going to be speaking in a foreign language. The only languages I ever speak other than English are Spanish, Italian, and Finnish to varying degrees of competence. Um, but the first thing I do is, like for example, in in Italian, I would say. Yo, Paolo Italiano, molto bueno, tutti mi amici italiani, penso che io sono italiano, right? Which is like <laughs> the most ridiculously exaggerated English accent. And me saying, yeah, I speak Italian so well, all my Italian friends think I'm Italian, right? And of course, it sounds absolutely fucking horrible. Everyone falls around laughing. And then when I speak my Italian in a not terribly good Italian accent, Right, it sounds so much better than what they just heard. They think it's great. Oh, so, that's set. a clever trick, guy. That's a very, very clever trick. You know, I, I like I said, I pick up the accents really well, which gets me into a lot of trouble. Um, because right. even if I, if I know, even if I know like twenty-five phrases, if I know twenty-five phrases, that's barely enough for me to ask for really basic things and sometimes understand the response. <laughs> right. Right. But if I say it perfectly, if I say it perfectly, I'll say, you know, I'm. I'm sorry, but I need help. Can you help me? Something really simple like that. But I say it with a perfect accent. Their response is just insane because they think I must be yeah. fluent. You know, right. so I, I, that, that's an excellent tactic. That's a good life hack here, guy. I'm going to take that one from you next time I'm, I'm abroad. <laughs> excellent. Um, okay, so you did graduate studies. So you finished a graduate degree. What was that in? Translation studies. Oh, God, that's brutal. That it is really was. brutal. Yeah, it wasn't oh, my fun. Lord. 
Um, so have you have you looked at any of the translations of historical martial arts sources that people have put out? Like me, people like me have put out. I'm not asking for a critique of one of mine. I'm just, I just, you know, what are, what are, what do you think of the current state of translation in historical martial arts, or do you not have an opinion? I well, well, but here's the thing, right? That the translator lies. So I think if if you're lucky, if you're lucky, whatever it is you're studying in a language you don't understand, if you can find, you know, if you can find more than one translation, you'll start to triangulate what the native speaker was saying. If, if you ah. find, yeah. Okay. So, you're, you're wait, a second, wait 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 a second. Yes, I agree. But the problem is at the moment in historical martial arts, there are some absolutely catastrophically bad translations available for free. And people are comparing the professionally done ones with the catastrophically bad free ones. I mean, with just like... Things which are plain and simply wrong. I mean, it's not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of fact. I mean, if you translate table as horse, that doesn't, that's just wrong. Um, and and so I, I absolutely agree. Two high quality translations, compare those side by side, will, will give you an interesting triangulation on the, on the original source. But you've got to be super careful that the translations that you're comparing are equivalently professionally or well done. Because the bad ones can really mess you up. Mm-hmm. Agreed, agreed. Um, and and I will add to that: um, some translators aim to be invisible, you know, so it, so that it looks like you're yeah. reading in, in its original um, source. But I think it's helpful. Again, it's available. It's helpful to look at a, at a at a literal translation and a more refined translation because um, if if you see it in your language but the way that they said it that yeah. that's informative in a way that is lost when when you when you continue to convert it to the way you would say it so having having the benefit of both is good sometimes you'll find a single translation that has layers of translation so they'll show they'll show the source text they'll show a print of the source text then they'll show uh, a super literal translation of the source text and then they show how we would say it you know, right. in, in the target language. Um, and so these are really good. But again, in, in that case, if it's just one translator, uh, it, that, that's sometimes not sufficient to um, triangulate on what the uh, source text said, especially when it's instruction about technique. Okay. Why especially say? Because that is, um, that's so complicated and specific. You know, so so take take just explaining in your own language to someone else who is a native speaker of that language, try explaining uh, a snapshot of any movement mm. and explaining it as if it's, it's a new thing. Let's, let's, let's take, okay, Dude, let's take I, opening. I do this all the time. I do this all the time. I mean, I have like oh, a dozen books which do exactly that. So yeah, I know exactly how hard it is because I've had the experience of writing a book, publishing it. People find the book. Their only training has been mediated through the book. Then they come and train with me and I can see all the places where they have somehow, okay, it's not fair to say they have misread, but I have phrased something infelicitously, and so they are doing something in a way that I didn't actually intend, right? So I've experienced this yes. from that perspective. Well, it, it's, it's sometimes, sometimes that's innovation. Sometimes it's yeah. innovation. And I'll say, I'll say uh, for example, um, so I've tried to do some... Um, I call it manual interpretation. So it's just breaking out one of the source texts and reading from the translation 
and you have one person reading and you have two people acting. Yeah. And it, and it will have, it will have images now, assuming that the images are correct because they might not be. Yeah. Sure. But assuming That's a big assumption. Right. Right. It's just so assuming that the images are correct. If you take the instructions and say, now he does this cut and now he responds by doing this uh, guard and now he turns to do this and now he puts his foot here and so on and so forth. And so you're, you're talking them through that and you're instructing yeah. them and they're acting it out um, per instructions and you finish the play and and you say, well, now does that look like a picture? And they might <laughs> have pulled off does. something. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. But sometimes, sometimes it doesn't. And what they did was awesome. Yeah. And sometimes it doesn't. And what they did is an absolute clusterfuck, to use a military term. Yes. Yeah. Well, some, sometimes, and this is the other thing too. Sometimes you, you are following it correctly, but it's just not a good technique. That's rare in my experience. Um, what sources are you using? What? Oh, this, so this is, this is a good question. Um, I, I, have, I have an eclectic library of sources I couldn't even name all the authors right now. Um, you know, I'm looking at the, um, what's it called? Muye Dobo Tongji, which is a Korean one. Um, mm -hmm. I'm looking at uh, Lewis Nolan. He was a, a British Empire cavalryman. Um, there, there are some um, old Arabic manuals. I, 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 I don't speak Arabic. I'm not going to uh, try to, you know, to disrespect anybody by mispronouncing that. Um, um, but, you know, I'll, I'll thumb through these. And sometimes I pick some stuff up and say, oh, you know, that, that, that's an interesting idea. More often, more often, I'll say, you know, yeah, you could do that, but why wouldn't you just do this instead? Or, or yeah, you could do that, but that's not really a great idea. Like, well, why wouldn't you just do this instead? And that, that, that's where a lot of my curriculum comes from. Okay, but so one thing I would say, Go ahead. yeah, one thing I would say is that um, ha choosing a source to study is a skill in itself. Okay, so when I'm teaching people the, the research side of this this practice, um, one of the things we start with is what to look for in a source, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things you need to look for in a source is the writer actually knows what they're talking about. Right? So cla <laughs> right. classic, classic example, classic example would be Salvatore Fabris. He was fencing master to the King of Denmark in 1603. He's probably pretty good. And his book has been, went through a couple of editions and has been widely plagiarized and was still being popular in plagiarized and borrowed and um, translated versions for a hundred years after it was written. Okay. So we can be pretty confident that he didn't get his position as fencing master to the King of Denmark because, I don't know, the King fancied him. He actually had some serious skills. Right. And, same with Fiore, right? The main street in his hometown is named after him. And he, um, he was given the command of the artillery at the uh, city of Udine. So he's like proper military dude, has some serious, seriously well-respected knights as his students. We're, we can be pretty confident that he himself knew what he was doing. It doesn't mean he's necessarily a good writer and doesn't mean that he's been necessarily well-represented on the page, but... We have good reason to think that the author actually knew what they were talking about. And then when we look at the books of these people and you go through them, it's all eminently practical and quite easy to reproduce, really. I mean, it took us a while to figure it out, but it's quite easy to reproduce. So, so the issue of looking at it and going, really, would you do that? So far, every time I've done that with Fiore and I've tried it out, I've gone, well, actually, yes, you would do that because it actually works. 
Um, but there are certainly sources for which that hasn't been the case. Uh, this this might be you know this might be iconoclastic uh, you know to say, this on, to say this to you on your show. There, 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 <laughs> there, there is there is a plate. I don't I don't have the manuscript in front of me. I don't have I don't have any translation of a fiore in front of me. But okay. uh, I have seen a plate. I have seen a plate uh, on on horseback uh, where there's okay. uh, where there's one guy holding uh, a sword. Yeah. And they're passing, and the guy with the sword is hooking his arm around the other rider's neck. I will fetch that image for you just now. Hang on. Yeah, yeah, let's grab it. Yeah, this, I, okay. I might be out of context here. That's okay. I have it. I have it right here. Okay. Yeah. So, yep. Yeah, okay. Now, when we get to the mounted combat stuff, I will confess this is not my area of expertise. So, yeah. Okay. Here we go. Yeah, there are two here. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so All what right. is wrong? What is wrong with those? Well, let's let's start with what? Why? Why would you bother hooking somebody with your arm around his neck when you have a sword? In okay. Well, maybe perhaps. that's maybe that's the maybe that's the rule of the game. Maybe they're saying you know try, try to take this guy off without a sword. You know, <laughs> do it without using lethal force. There could be some context there I'm missing. Um, but it's 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 much trickier to get your arm around somebody's neck with two passing horses than it is to just strike them fatally with a sword. Sure, except if you have come from the previous situation, which was they are quite close together. Now, this isn't necessarily a follow-on, but there are lots of actions done at various measures. So we have a pommel strike later on and a counter to the pommel strike and various sort of wrestling type things. But the, I mean, the issues I see, I mean, I've, I know people who've reproduced this play without any trouble. The reason you would do that would be because let's say you miss with your pommel strike. Mm. Yeah. And okay. you have an opportunity just to hook him off the back of his horse. Why wouldn't you do it? Well, it's kind of uh, risky. I mean, I wouldn't do it, but because it, it, it is risky it, and it risks pulling you off your own horse. Um, you know, if they see yeah, that coming. Although, yeah, but he and, does and have, why wouldn't you a, strike him? Um, sorry, he has, he has a medieval saddle, which makes it difficult to be pulled off backwards. So he's pulling him off to the side and, yeah, I, I, I can see why you wouldn't want to do it unless you had good reason to do it. But I don't see why it's not the, the situation wouldn't occur. I mean, we see it in swordplay all the time, right? Where we're fencing and stuff happens and the pommel strike hasn't gone through or whatever and we're that close and we end up doing a hip throw. This is basically mm -hmm. the, the horse equivalent of a hip, of a hip throw. Mm, um, I, I, I won't dispute that that's the horse equivalent of a hip throw. But, but, but remember, the situation is different when you're on a horse. Um, mm -hmm. because you're not in your, you're not in your own feet, right? You're sitting on a horse. Sure. Um, and, and, and also assuming that the, the, the two horses are going forward, that changes the situation a little bit. Uh, so, okay. Okay. Well, let's say, let's, let's say that that's not a completely impractical, impractical uh, application. Let's say other things have failed and you wind up, wind up here. I, 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 I'd like to, hmm, I'd like to experiment with this one because I still think that a strike from behind with the sword would make more sense than, than to hook the arm around the neck. Which, which he does have later on. Oh, well, bravo. Um, I'll give, I'll give another example. I'll give another example. Um, not from Fiore. This is, um, I, I, I saw a lecture on somebody trying to, uh, recreate from a Mameluke source. And, and, um, again, okay. forgive me. I, I'm not going to try to butcher the names. Um, but it was, it was a Mameluke source and the, um, the play went something like this. Um, so if, if you have two horses that are moving and, and, uh, um, the cavalrymen, are armed in the right hand. Your strongest um, 
attack zone is going to be forward and to the right. And your weakest uh, attack and defense zone is going to be behind you and to the left. You have a sort of a blind spot yeah. because your body's in between you and your, and your sword. So, it, so if you have horses running around um, freely, if you can get behind and to the left of the person that you're assaulting, excepting if they're using something that attacks to the left, like a bow. Um, but if they're, if they're armed with a sword or a lance, if you can get behind and to the left, uh, that's kind of their blind spot, right? So they yeah. have a bit of a disadvantage there. So this, okay. this source prescribes, this source mm -hmm. prescribes that the lancer in the front, who is being pursued by a lancer uh, behind and to his left, the lancer in the front takes his lance by the bottom end, okay, by the butt, or called the shoe, and drags the tip in the dirt. Okay, so you've seen this so far. So he has the full yeah. length of, of the lance sort of trailing behind him. Yeah. And that he... On, he on his right-hand side, presumably. So yeah. it's dragging behind and to the right. So it's so he has this... He has the full length of the, of the lance. The fulcrum is on the ground, and he is mm -hmm. waving it by the butt to ward off strikes from the lance using the length of the lance. Is, is, are you picturing this so far? Vaguely. Yeah, Vaguely. it doesn't... You know, and I could I could demonstrate it, but I know it's not going to make it into, onto the audio. Um, okay, so so I'm riding along, and I have my lance behind me on the ground, and I'm holding it by the butt. Yes, yeah, and I'll okay. I'll grab a lance, and, and actually I'll I'll talk I'll talk while I'm doing it. Okay. All right. So so we'll say I've got I've got my lance in my right hand. Yeah. And 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 my adversary is behind it to my left. Yeah. So I'll take the tip of my lance. I'll drag it in the dirt. Oh, you drag it in the dirt and, on the other side, so you, you pop swing, it over your left yeah. side. Okay, yeah, and, and then you do a kind yeah. of uh, like a yeah. That, that makes a kind right. of sense. So you're swinging, so you're swinging the butt end of the lance high and over your left. Okay, so yeah. so and it's on the left side of the horse. Yeah, that makes so sense. you're like, okay, well, I suppose so. Um, however, to what end? Uh, do you just keep doing this ad infinitum and hope that the guy will finally leave you alone because you're not worth the trouble? That's to, a good to question. Be, to be martial art, this has to be both defense and attack. So that, that has no offensive capability. And in fact, you put your lance in a position where you cannot deploy it offensively. Now to recover it to an offensive, um, to recover it to some sort of, of offensive capacity, you have to shift back to some other configuration, during which time you, you really are quite vulnerable. Now I do have a prescription or a few prescriptions for what to do if you have a lance and a lancer is coming up behind to the left. But that's not it, because that doesn't have an end game. Right. Right. You're, okay. defend, you're defending against something until either he gives up or he gets you. Because honestly, that's also yeah. not really a great defense. Right. Parries do not shield. win sword fights. Yeah. Parries do not win right. sword fights. Right. right. They, they don't win lance fights. fights. Yeah. No. Same rule is true. Okay. So and, and anybody can... Anybody can drill this to find out, but if you play a game where one of you is attacking and one of you is defending, eventually the attacker is going to get you. Yeah. And this is yeah, not, yeah, this is not again, this is not a great way to parry. This is a very kind of tenuous, uh, unstable, hard to see, um, you know, it, very, very small it, surface area. It's, it sounds sort of like a have a last ditch, desperate, oh shit, I'm going to die, so I might as well try this. It is, but but for as much trouble, you could invert the lance, turn around, and throw it at him. Yeah, true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, and, and this, this business of um, creeping up on the left side, I've had the pleasure of doing 
sword against sword mounted combat with Jennifer Landles. And she is a much, 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 much better rider than I will ever be. I think I'm probably a better swordsman than she is. But as for riding, she is way out of my league and way beyond. Right. And the problem was she kept getting behind me and to the left and just carved me up like salami because there wasn't much I could do about it when she got into that spot. So when you said behind to them, I was like, oh, shit, Jen's there. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know this one. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's obvious once, once, you, once you've seen it. Um, yeah. But that, that is one of those things that, that does change the situation with cavalry um, from infantry. You can't just it, – it takes more effort to turn around. But you can yeah. turn. You know? so, so if you're being pursued, if for some reason you need to flee and you need, you need to go in a certain direction, that, that's, that's one situation. But if you're just in – you got stuck in some sort of cavalry melee. If you turn left or right, they're, they're not behind you anymore. They're beside you. Yeah. Um, you know, so, how so did you get the angle of it? Yeah. How did you get into the whole mounted combat thing? Because we we haven't heard about we've heard about Russia and translation and sort of martial arts tourism and whatnot, um, but we haven't actually mentioned horses yet. How did that start? Well, well. There's a black and white answer to that. It started with there's there's a company um, I think it started in Spain, but they you know there's there's a few of them here. It's a franchise. Medieval times it does uh, these show jousts um, for an audience and serves them dinner. So it's kind of a restaurant meets um, jousting show. Yeah, it's, it's an experience. Yeah, yeah, um, and I, I had never ridden before that. Um, this, this, this was, uh, this was shortly after I got out of the military. So I, I guess in some way it was kind of an answer to, I want to be a swordsman. Although I wouldn't say this made me a swordsman uh, by any means. Um, and it was, it was, it was for show. I, I say it's for show, but look, uh, there were horses running at each other and there were men hitting each other with sticks in, in their shields. Yeah. So that part, I mean, the jousting was really jousting. Um, that's, that's where the horse thing started. But to say, to say that I got into medieval times, and that got me into horses, and, and the rest is history, uh, would be, I think, deceptive. Um, my, my interest in mounted combat is separate to and coincidental to um, medieval times. Medieval times just was, was, uh, was a coincidental opportunity. You know, okay. it's, it's a way, it's, it, was a way that, it was a way that I could surmount the uh, barrier to entry, which was um, you know, being able to afford horses and horse lessons. Okay, so did you work for them? I did. Ah, right. Okay, so basically, they they subsidised your horsemanship training. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So handy. It, you know, very yes, handy. 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 I got I got paid while I was while I was training to ride. That horse, stuff is not cheap. No, it's it's very expensive. Um, horses horses are expensive to keep. Yeah. Um, but there, there's a co-evolutionary element to that, you know. So because they're expensive to keep, you know, more affluent people are interested in it. And so, so events and, and material um, involving horses tend to be proportionately expensive. Yeah. Uh, just because, just because they're involving horses. Yeah. Okay. So there's a long way between joining medieval times, being unable to ride, and um, opening your own school of mounted combat stuff. So. Fill in the gaps. Um, well, the, as far as opening my own school, let me let me let me try to back engineer from that. Um, okay. Because because listen, um, if I can go back to saying I learned to fight by fighting, and, and after the fact I started training formally, I think that the study of martial art, if applied correctly, is um, it's it's therapeutic. 
Okay. Right. It's there. It's therapeutic to the poisoned mind. It's therapeutic. Therapeutic to the wrathful mind. Uh, it's therapeutic to the fearful mind. If um, if it's if. trained that way, it's I have seen plenty of people with the poisoned mind and the fearful mind and whatnot, where martial arts training made it worse because they yes. because the school was feeding that rather than feeding its counter. Um, exactly. Exactly. This is this yeah. is this is part of my point. Um, I don't mean to sling mud or throw shade at anybody here, no, but sure. uh, you you look at the um, cage fighting culture uh, that's mm-hmm. become popular, really popular in the last uh, I don't know twenty years maybe, um, and the, those schools don't teach you manners. <laughs> you know, um, you don't have to be you don't have to be kind to be uh, successful at one of those schools. You no. just have to be—you just have to be good at hitting people and good at getting hit. Um, you know that, that might be oversimplifying, oversimplifying what goes into being a successful um, cage fighter, but um, which I don't mean to do. You know, I, I think those guys are uh, tremendously technical and athletic. Um, but you don't have to be—you don't have to be a good person. You don't have to be a decent human being to do that. And I don't think they—I um, don't think they really promote that. So if, if you happen to sure. be—you know—if you happen to be of a disposition. Where you're, you're generous and compassionate and, and uh, patient, um, I don't think studying MMA is going to ruin you. But if you're not, if you're not one of those things, uh, you know, we have a home for people like 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 that, which is MMA gym, which you know inevitably um, inevitably starts to drive away some of the more uh, compassionate types, right? Um, so there's a sort of culture um, of you know. Um, how do I say this? Okay, this 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 reminds me of, like when people ask me a lot for advice on what schools to send their children to in terms of martial mm-hmm. arts and whatnot, right? And also maybe they're training in a place which doesn't have a historical martial arts club, and so they're looking to train a different martial art to kind of pick up some skills for when the swords become available, right? And one of the key pieces of advice I give is have a look at the senior students in the school because. If the training works at all, you will turn into that if you join that school. So if you want to be like those senior students, go train there. If you don't, then don't. Because if you do go there, you will turn into that. Are we doing that with the historical sources as well? How do you mean? Um, well, I mean, this, is, this this doesn't have to do with character per se. It could, you know, if, if there's record of it. But, you know, we, we, look, at, um, we look at some of the sources and we say, um, you know, well, you, you brought up credibility earlier, right? You, you know, this this author was the master instructor for um, some somebody of great power. He could pick anybody, and this is the one he picked. So he must know what he's talking about. Yeah. But but you know, is that true? Uh, can we can we look at his students? You know, can we look at his students and did did not just one but multiple of his students? go on to be successful by applying his system. That's what I would look at sure. for the system. It's not, not the instructor, but the students. The students are the product, sure. right? Yeah, um, yeah that, that is true. In terms of character, though, the way that we train as modern people is so completely unlike the culture and the environment in which these students were training in that um, even if a... It's, I don't think it's the style itself that produces nice people or assholes at the top. It's the training culture and the school culture that they're training in, right? So, I mean, I've trained in some martial arts which are, on the face of it, absolutely fucking vicious, 
I mean, mm-hmm. testicle grabs and eye gouges and s- hidden blades that you stick into the jugular and all that sort of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. G- great fun. And the people who, who are training all that, super lovely and nice. Mm-hmm. And I have trained in some places with arts that were supposedly all sorts of, all sort of spiritual and nice. And I mean, I quit one Aikido club because one of the senior students happened to mention that he was single no, he's with his girlfriend. So he should take the next beginner's course because that's where these instructors picked up their girlfriends, mm. right? I was like, that is just fucking hideous. I'm out of here, right? Yeah, very, uh, very expert. You know, I, I, was, I was like super low status. I've been training there six months or a year, white belt, mm. whatever. So it wasn't like I could do anything about it. But it was like, I am having no part of a place like this. And I left. Um, so so it's, it's, it's not the art itself that, that creates the character of the senior students. I think it's the school culture and the training culture. I, I agree. I agree. Um, I agree. Although there's, um, there's, there's overlap in the locale, right? It, you, you can, you can have an art that tends to attract a certain type and within oh, sure. that art, within that art, some schools are more this or that. And some other schools are more this or that. And within that school, some instructors are more this and that. And within that school um, or under that instructor, certain students are more this and that and so on and so forth. Um, and, and, and I, you know, to that end, um, some arts, uh, I think, are a better home for some people of a certain disposition um, so, where they are at that time. So if, if you're just like, you know, I, I really like just hitting people in the face and I don't I don't care if somebody hits me in the face, um, you know, chances are you're going to wind up in an MMA gym. Sure. Nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, however, um, I... I wanted something that both taught fighting that would work if it were applied, but also taught good character. Okay. You know, uh, I, I think it was in Plato's Republic. They, it, they talk about the sort of like, uh, the, 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 the natural warrior who, you know, if, if, if left to his own devices would basically be robbing banks. But that's not useful. That's not useful to society. So we can't keep people like that around. They're just they're just destructive. So we have to we have to culture them with um, compassion. And, you know, so what like what what's what's the real difference between uh, what's the real difference between a warrior and and a brigand, you know, or a thug? Right. You know, they're both people willing to do violence to another. But what makes the warrior special is service. And that that service means selflessness. And, and you can't have uh, you can't have an art that. Um, just teaches you to always win, to always be brutal, and and to just do those things to your own end, so that uh, what you can be uh, the big dog in your town, or you can win the next belt. Um, that's not teaching selflessness. You know, that's not teaching so, service. I'm I'm guessing that if you lived in the valley, you'd be training Miyagi Do, not Cobra Kai. <laughs> well, you know that that is a um, if that were a real thing. Right. We, we could examine that philosophically. But, yeah, using that model, um, using that model, I, I think um, winning for the sake of trophies is not engendering selflessness. And I think so there's a missing component to your warriorship then w- with with warriorship. You know, you can't divorce it from um, you can't divorce it from the violence. You know, I, I've, I've heard sure. people talk about, oh, the martial art that I study, it's a nonviolent martial art. I, I don't know what that what? Means, guy. <laughs> no, yeah, I've, I've, heard this, I've heard this more than once. I've heard this many times. I've heard this many times, several times, because 
because um, you know people go study an art that bills itself as a martial art, and they they don't they don't want to they don't want to be producing you know bullies they don't want to be producing aggressive people that are a menace uh, they're also not producing people that are ready for a fight yeah so it's, it's difficult to balance that I get that how how can you have somebody who's kind of sweet by nature who's ready to fight it's tough you know you, you have you have to switch back and forth between the two and be able to balance them both and it's, it's tough to do um, mm. because somebody's just mean all the time somebody's mean all the time it's hard to get the drop on right. But you have somebody yeah. that's, that wants to give you the benefit of the doubt and wants to be kind to you and, and to de-escalate, um, he's, he's always going to be late to the fight, right? He has, he, he has a little more processing before he's, ready, before he's combat ready, um, hmm. de- depending on the situation, right? Endanger and, and, and and a woman's child and, and she'll, she'll switch, switch into warrior mode pretty quick. Um, <laughs> yeah. Any parent, in fact. That. Yeah, any parent. Sure. Okay, yeah, any parent. I, I have... I have, I have never killed anyone and i'm i don't think i ever would but one time i was pushing pram and my firstborn was about six months old i was pushing the pram through the park and somebody came tearing through the park on a motorbike and mm-hmm. went right by us within like 18 inches right if i had a gun i would have shot that fucker no question do that put my child's life i just it's a good thing i don't carry a gun <laughs> because if i had been carrying a gun, I, there's no question i would have shot them just because they're putting my child at risk for no good reason. Fuck you. You die. Boom. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I would have regretted it and it would be a very bad thing. And then I'd spend the rest, you know, at least 10 years or so in prison and miss most of my daughter's upbringing. It would not have been a good response. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there are, there, are, there are triggers, particularly for parents. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, that, that's, just, that's just a very accessible example. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's an example I think a lot of people can, can, can reach without ever having been in a real fight you might be somebody who's never been struck in anger and says like look maybe i you know i study martial art but nobody's ever really tried to hurt me before nobody's ever like uh really met me ill before what would it actually be like if you're a parent you know um if, if you can imagine what you would do to protect your kid you know assuming you're you're, you're of a, of a mm. reasonable and healthy mental disposition you know, some parents they don't care uh, but if, if you're of a reasonable and healthy disposition that mindset you know that's what it would be like you know, if, yeah. if, if, if you're fighting out of anger, if you're fighting out of anger, you know, fighting out of anger. And then, of course, you know, some people fight out of fear. Um, fear and anger are the most obvious and the most, um, um, I think, immediate, right? The most urgent emotions. Yeah, but also the ones most likely to make you make a mistake. Like, for instance, my shooting that person who, yeah. by the time I'd have got my gun out, was no longer a threat. I should have shot them on the way to the pram, but I didn't even know they were coming because I was like, busy paying attention to my child and you're not supposed to have motorbikes in that park so it would have been and, and also let me just say for the record i don't think that death by shooting is an appropriate punishment for someone who rides a motorbike in a park when they shouldn't <laughs> i don't think that is actually a capital offense in any reasonable society but you know the rage oh my god um yeah so okay the the concept of warriorship as you express it um it boils down to service so service to what that can be many things it is typically a person or a tribe okay you know um, and so even when somebody says an ideology usually they mean tribe right that ideology sure. is it's not because that ideology can mean whatever you say it, it can mean nominally whatever you say it means but really yeah. when you say oh, i'm fighting for an ideology you're fighting for the tribe of people who subscribe 
to that nominal ideology, ideology, not necessarily okay. the truth of that ideology. So let me let me narrow the question down. What mm-hmm. do you serve? That that's a good one. I, obviously, I, w- I walked right into that too, right? I have, I guess, a um, an affinity with those who have been uh, damaged. Uh, okay. By by hatred and fear, and to say whom do I serve? Well, you know what what what's the nature of my service? Am I fighting right now? Am, am I warring right now? I'm not. Um, <laughs> I'm in peacetime. I'm an instructor guy, so I serve as an instructor. Um, and and whom do I serve? Well, the majority of my students are writers who are looking to get more out of their writing. Uh, but but the the demographic that I'm really targeting is the people I think would benefit the most from this sort of thing. And, and they're people who have been damaged by hatred and fear. And some of those people don't have access to the sort of thing, you know? So I, I, I want, I want to make it available. Okay. How are you doing that? How am I doing it right now? Well, we, so for example, there, there's a, there's a program, uh, there's a program locally called luck, uh, stands for, leg up for Cleveland kids. Um, okay. And what they do, what they do is they, um, they gather money, they get, they get grants so that they can um, buy riding instruction for uh, these kids that wouldn't have uh, access to it otherwise. Sure. And, and I've had the honor of working with them. They're doing, doing a great job. I, I, I thought about something like this a long time ago. And, and I was like, well, I don't know where the money's going to come from. I don't know how it's all going to get paid for. But somehow, and, and uh, miraculously, uh, luck reached out to us. I didn't, I didn't even reach out to them. They, they reached out to us and said, you know, uh, we saw your program. It looks interesting. We'll say something our kids want to do. Um, so, it, you know, I, I, want, I want to be more available to, um, I want to be more available to uh, people like that in that way. Because the, the kids that are um, involved in that program, um, they couldn't pay for my program out of pocket. I try to keep, by the way, I try, I try to keep my, my, my lessons prohibitively expensive. I think in the way of horse lessons, um, I'm pretty cheap. <laughs> I'm pretty cheap. But listen, <laughs> horses, horses are expensive, guy. Somebody's got to feed the horses. I know. Horses. Yeah. I know. Yeah. They're, they're like airplanes. They are just ridiculously expensive. Um, yeah. and, and so, yeah, I, I imagine you have to charge fairly big chunks of cash for people to come and use your very expensive horses. So, so how did you, if you don't mind asking, how did you set it up as a business and what was the, that process? Well, actually, and this is, this is a segue off of what you just said. Um, okay. I, first of all, they're not, they're not my horses. I'm renting. I dry ah. lease, uh, I think is the, the industry term for, for what I do. Um, I am, I am renting at someone else's barn and I use her horses. Um, um, and I, I should, I should give credit to the, the name of the place in Hinkley. It's, um, is uh, Horsehaven Stables, and, and the gal's name is, is Solange, and she was willing to take a risk with my untested school, which not a lot of horse barns would do. No, you know? they wouldn't. So I'm, I'm I'm really grateful that uh, I'm really grateful that whether it's because she was being compassionate or because she was bored and wanted to see something exciting at her school, uh, she was willing to, she Let's was go willing to, to let me, yeah, she, that she was willing to, to, to let me uh, use her barn and her horses that she took the risk. And now that I have a bit of a history, I've got, I've got pictures of students doing things and, and testimonials. 
you know, I can go to other barns and say, look, uh, this, this is a thing. This is what I do. It works. Nothing bad happened. Uh, and now they say, okay, great. But if I said, hey, I want to start a school, most people would be like, I, yeah, I it's not fit any box. The first one's the hardest. Yeah. yeah. first one is by far the hardest. Okay. So that's actually a really good way to go about it because you have, um, you're, you're basically renting your infrastructure. Yes. Rather than having to find the capital to set up. I mean, because you would, it would cost you several million dollars to set that up from scratch, I would have thought. Yes. The land, yes. the horses, the equipment, the training, the buildings, all that sort of stuff. That's a lot of money. I think you've frozen. Are you still no, there? No, I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> okay. You okay. Lose something. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So I have a couple of questions that I ask all of my guests. Um, okay. The first one is, I mean, you, you've done lots of different things. What's the best idea you haven't acted on yet? Uh, move to Finland, open a sword school. <laughs> <laughs> I did that already. That was great. Yeah, it's a good idea. Yeah. No, no, actually, um, uh, I've written a few books and, uh, and I need to follow them, follow them through to publication. Ooh. Ooh. Okay. You, you are aware that, that I make about half my living from the books that I have published myself, right? I surmised, yeah. Yes. Okay. And as we are, in a sense, old friends, you are entirely at liberty to like ask me for any assistance you may require in getting that sorted out for. Right? It's not difficult. Uh, r- really, just, it looks it looks incredibly difficult. Yeah. It is super simple. Okay. Okay. I will, I will run right. it. Th- I will run it through the, the. Okay. You've you've written your book. Okay. Uh huh. Um. So w- when the book is effectively finished, right? It needs professional editing. Mm-hmm. Right. You'll need to pay for that because it's. You know, it's it's essential that the book is brought up to uh, a good professional standard because you're going to be asking mm. people to pay for it. Okay, mm. it's not terribly expensive, um, presume, provided it's reasonably well written already. And there are some um, automatic tools that you can use to get it as good as you can get it before you get mm. set, get sent to a human editor. So that helps shave off some of the costs. Because then you have your edited text. It needs to go to layout if it's got lots of pictures and it or it's complex or some kind of art project, it needs to go to a professional graphic designer. If it doesn't have that, if it's just text or there's only a few pictures, there are tools that will let you lay it out yourself and it will look sufficiently professional. Vellum is a good choice. Um, and that will export your print files. You then need a cover design. I would advise hiring a cover designer, a few hundred dollars, and that will get you your ebook cover, paperback and hardback covers. Okay, so from layout, you've got your ebook file and your interior print file and from your graphic designer you've got your cover designer you've got your cover files ebook paperback and hardback if you choose to a hardback which you probably should and then it's simply a question of creating a couple of accounts Um, current best practice is probably have an ingram spark account for print don't use their ebook service and then use something like draft to digital to publish your um, ebooks on every and it will do them on every platform for you, right? And it is literally just filling out some stuff, jumping through some hoops. It is easy. Seriously, and this, this is all. This is all for self-publication, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, I, I actually was not thinking about self-publication, but uh, you know, oh, okay. maybe maybe that would be the path. I, I don't know. It, it you know, there's there seems well, to be some pros and cons of both. Okay, the, okay. The reason I make about half my income from my books is because I self-publish them. If I sold I the same number of copies, I would make about a fifth as much money. 
best case scenario if it was if they were commercially published so if i think that the commercial publisher is going to sell at least five times more copies than i can sell myself then i should go with the commercial publisher but the problem with commercial publishers these days is the model has become really bad for authors, right? It's all about a big launch and make loads of money in the first week or so. Um, and the author is still expected to do all the marketing. So Really? Mm. Yeah, totally. You will not get marketing done by your publishers unless they have decided for whatever reason that they're going to put you on the sides of buses and get you onto Oprah and all that sort of stuff which is very unlikely, right? Mm -hmm. Most commercially published books don't make back the advance, and the advance these days is pitiful for most authors. I see. Right? It is, it is a, it's a really difficult position now. because You've got authors at the top. It's like, like the acting profession, right? You've got mm -hmm. authors at the top who are making millions and for whom every time they bring out a book, the publishing arm puts all of its power behind it so that, you know, because they know that it's going to do well anyway. And if they give it a big push, it will do spectacularly well. And everyone makes shitloads of money, right? Mm -hmm. um, then you've got most most authors, in the UK at least, are making less than 10... And they're trying to be full-time authors, make less than £10,000 a year from uh. their books through commercial publishing, right? Mm. Because the advance might be only 2000 3000 maybe, which sounds like a lot of money to have as a chunk up front. But actually, how long can you live on that much money? And if you've got horses, yeah, how, long, how long it take you to write the book? Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, if you get a really good contract, a really good offer from a good publishing house, absolutely. And there are there are sort of halfway house things like Unbound, for example, which basically run a crowdfunding campaign for you or with you. And if the book gets financed, it gets published by them, and they do the editing and the layout and all that sort of stuff. And they do do some. They do put a bit of publicity behind it as well right and then you've got lots and lots of totally scammy absolutely awful vanity presses who will take loads of money from you publish your book and like send you 300 copies of the hardback or whatever and that's that and it's just a disaster just horrible but there are author services companies white fox in the uk being one example where they you retain your copyright on everything and there is a sort of a profit share such sort of arrangement. I don't use them, so I don't have the, the depth and details about it. But um, yeah, it's they provide editing services and marketing services and that kind of stuff, which tend to be mostly paid for out of the book sales rather than you having to pay them up front. So there's, there is help to be had if you need it. Um, but yeah, I would... I mean, what, what, what book are we talking about? What's the title? Uh, the, so my, my, my big one that I wrote over the shutdown, you know, because I was, I was bored. So I wrote a book. Um, uh, I wrote a 120,000 word book on pedagogy. I, I have okay. titled it rage, rage against the pedagogy. It, it, it starts with the problem, the problem of how most teachers and institutions teach, why that is both toxic and ineffective. Okay. Um, and and a better, a more effective, empowering, efficient way to teach that works that people would want to do. Okay, sounds like there's a market there. And actually, one thing is, if you self-publish it and it does really well, you may then get offers from commercial publishing houses, which are not insultingly low. <laughs> so, just a thought. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so what are, what are your views on pedagogy? How should one teach? 
in a nutshell. Wow, in, in a nutshell. Um, well, so I think of all of my instruction as teaching confidence. If you are losing your belief and your ability to do something, that's that's the opposite of learning. So if, okay. if I feel like I have a choice, if I feel like I have a choice between um, challenging in a way that's going to give you uh, more exposure to something that requires more skill and uh, something that, that is going to give you more confidence. And, and, and it very often is both. But, but if I have to choose between the two, for example, if, I, if I'm finishing up a class and I say, well, I got a, little bit of, got a little bit of time, I could throw in a challenge there, but probably most people aren't going to be able to pull it off. I don't want to finish in a way where like, oh man, I got all the way through that, that class and then I failed at the end. Yeah, you have, to, you have to finish on success. You have to finish on success yeah. always. There can be plenty of yeah. failure along the way in, in the class, but the end you, it has to be successful. Yeah, always. And critical okay. thinking. Most, most teaching that I've seen, whether it be um, academic or uh, physical skills, whether it's institutional or private, um, whether it's for children or for adults, is uh, based on obedience and memorization. Do it this way okay. because this is the way it's done, right? Or remember these things. And that, that, that's not critical thinking. So, any, so the second something novel happens, you're powerless to do anything based on what you learn. It's not applicable to any situation that's, that's novel to whatever you were learning. Okay. I mean, even math is just a model. Like the numbers are not really the thing. They're just, they're just notation. Yeah. So if you're learning math and you're like, well, look, it's math. Math is always right. Just learn the formulas. Um, that's, that's actually not true. You know, there are novel situations that math has not mapped. So, so if, if you never think critically and you're not taught to think critically, that's um, the, the learning is not going to empower you outside of the artificial classroom setting. I had a very good math teacher. Uh, I can still do calculus now, even though I almost never do, right? That's because wonderful. he explained it. He explained it from first principles, right? Like not... Okay, this is a formula that you apply like this. It was okay. So you have a curve, and you divide the curve. And I would, I would mangle his explanation if I just ad libbed it now. But it was like it was sufficiently good that I actually understand how differentiation works, so that it makes sense when to use it and how to do it. Mm-hmm. Right? And Com- I'm not particularly good at maths. Well, it sounds like you are, and it sounds like because you had no. a good instruction. Well, I'm, I'm not, I'm not naturally good at maths. Put it that way, right? Okay. But yeah, it's, it's, it's when things are, exp- when things are taught properly, there you don't have to remember them because you understand them. Right. Exactly. Memorization and comprehension are not the same, and yeah. most instruction teaches memorization. This is the problem I have with um, acronyms. A lot of people say, "Hey, if this happens, just remember this acronym." And if you don't recall the acronym, especially, um, you know, I see acronyms are, are employed a lot in how to react to an emergency. You know, if you see really? somebody choking, just remember, you know, LAPD, you know, or whatever it is. And it's like, well, that, that's not useful because in an emergency, your recall for acronyms goes away. But if you understand, <laughs> yeah. if you understand what, what, you know, what the objective is and you understand um, in a roundabout way how to get there. You, you yeah. can solve your way to you can solve your way to uh, the objective, you know, by creative intelligence on the spot, right? Yeah, well, uh, but I mean, that, that's how. Yeah, I, I'm okay. learning to fly fly planes at the moment, and it is so many acronyms, and 
like, you know, do we have uh, VMC for a VFR today? Like, ah! but, okay, let's say you're, you're preparing for landing, right? You know, okay, right now I've got to do my bum fitch, right? Which is check the brakes, check the undercarriage, <laughs> right? um, check the mixture, check how much fuel you've got, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And the thing is, having the acronym works if you already know what to do and just want to make sure you're not going to skip any steps, yeah? But if you, you can't teach someone to land the plane by using an acronym, mm-hmm. yeah? So it's, it's useful once you already know how to do it. Yeah, and, and, and I, think, I think there are also situations that are, they're beyond your ability to comprehend, right? There, there are certain things yeah. that they're beyond the human ability to perceive or beyond the, the average person's ability to, to wrap his or her head around. And sometimes you got to say, like, look, I can't explain why traveling at the speed of light, you know, means that your friends are going to age, but you won't. But here's the mathematical formula you're just going to have to, you're just gonna have to take. And just be like, look, I can't, I can't wrap my head around it, but if you can show that it works, sometimes that's what you have to go with. Um, and, and I think also um, lists can be helpful for, uh, for certain things. But to, but to understand how to do a thing with acronyms, and this is actually really popular yeah. in the military. Why is it popular in the military? Because it's fast. You say, yeah. just remember this thing, you know, but ask somebody three years later, what, are those, what did that acronym stand for and what does it mean? Most people yeah. don't remember because they never yeah, comprehended it. It's the, um, it's the unpacking of it that's important. Like, like the I in Bumfitch is instruments. And the critical thing is that you set your altimeter so that it registers your height above ground level at the airport you're coming in to land at. So that when you fly your circuit around the airfield, you're flying at the same height as the other planes in the circuit and everyone knows where you all are and it's all, and you know how far you are above the actual ground, right? Mm. But if you don't, if you don't understand altimeters and the difference between height and altitude and all that kind of stuff, just checking your instruments, well, oh, yeah, it's working just fine because they are. Look, the altimeter goes up and down when I go up and down. It's fine. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Yeah. It's not, it's not helpful until you already know. But once you already know and actually really know it and understand it, then it's, then it's a useful way of just making sure you don't skip a step, I think. Although I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not really in favor of acronyms because honestly, Aviation, if you think the military is full of acronyms, I imagine military aviation is probably done entirely in acronyms. <laughs> <laughs> right. They probably never have actual conversations in English, right? Yeah. Okay. So my last question. Um, somebody gives you a million dollars to spend improving historical martial arts or related fields worldwide. How would you spend the money? Well, you know, uh, as, as we discussed earlier in this interview, a million dollars is not a lot in horses, you know, a million dollars is not enough. I could build one indoor arena for a million dollars. That's about it. Uh, but but let's let's expand that. Say, you know, bottomless pockets. If I had access to a lot of money, what would I do worldwide? I'm glad you said that because um, it, I, I would like to make the the program that I have. And when I say the program that I have, you know, I, I, I said I have mostly writers who want to do something novel with their writing, but, but I do want to make it available to the people I think would benefit from it the most. And, um, you know, I, I was lucky enough to have this one program locally that was able to bring some, um, disadvantaged kids to me. But if I had bottomless pockets, I would be bringing it to them and, 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 and beyond, you know, the, um, in some cultures it's, it's acceptable to recruit children as soldiers, uh, in, in other cultures, it's detestable. So sometimes there's some negotiation for uh, demobilizing those child soldiers. 
Yeah. And they go to they go to demobilization camps, right? Uh, I'll pull my pockets out. I've never worked at one of these camps. So I don't really know what the culture is like. But, you know, some of them, they call them lost boys because you, you've, you've taken them away from their former life to which they can never go back. And now you've also taken away their identity as soldiers. And I think the general attitude toward them is, you know, oh, it's really horrible what they did to you. It was exploitative. Uh, it was dangerous. It took away your childhood. Um, now you have all this darkness that you can never be rid of. You'll, you'll never be able to go back and have a normal childhood. You poor victim. But, That's not helpful. Uh, it's it's not helpful. It's not helpful. Not in their mind. That, that that may not be fair. Maybe maybe that's not that's not really the culture in these places. But but I, I think that's kind of the outsider's perspective on this sort of thing. And, and I think sure. I think most of them. Um, well, scratch that. Um, at least some of them have a very strong sense of pride in their identity as warriors. They have a lot of they have a lot of pride. Uh, for having been soldiers. And I think you take them out of their armies and they still need to express their martial urges. And what I would like, if you gave me bottomless pocket, is to be able to offer this program to something like that, to be able to take this to like a demobilization camp and give them an out for their martial urges while still cultivating their character and giving them a chance to heal. Wow. I did not see that coming. That is an outstanding suggestion. But yeah, it would take a lot of money to get horses to the Sudan or wherever these places are to um, get these kids training on those things. Somebody already has them out there. You just got to find them, you know? Yeah, true. Okay. Wow. Well, if I had the money, I'd give it to you. (laughs) (laughs) Truthfully, I say that to most of my guests because obviously most of my guests have pretty good answers but that that is that one is unique so you would you would use equestrian training to help rehabilitate child soldiers yes brilliant idea (laughs) well thank you so much for joining me today kate it's been great seeing you again it was a real pleasure guy good seeing you again thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed my conversation with kane you can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list, and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. And just a reminder about my birthday present. You can use the code GUYTURNS49 to get £5 off any of my books at swordschool.shop or 30% off any course at courses.swordschool.com. The code will work to the end of December 2022. That's GUYTURNS49, all caps, all one word, at swordschool.shop and courses.swordschool.com. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Veronica Young, who is an industrial designer, historical martial artist, and founder of Cryptid Combat Wear. Most of our discussion is taken up with her new business idea and product, which is decent functioning proper chest protection for people with breasts because historically they have been massively underserved and most of the solutions currently available are rubbish but veronica thinks she has cracked this you should tune in and find out if you agree to make sure you don't miss it you can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from and while you're there please do rate the show and if you have an extra minute leave a review it really does help And as always, if you've particularly enjoyed this episode, please do share it with your friends. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week.